Hello, I'm Kelly Tsai, the Dean of Humanities and Social Science at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. On behalf of the National Committee on US-China Relations, I'm excited to be speaking with Martin Dimitrov, Professor of Political Science and Chair of the Department of Political Science at Tulane University, about his new book, Dictatorship and Information, Authoritarian Regime Resilience in Communist Europe and China, published by Oxford University Press. Martin, I have the highest respect for your research on the study of comparative communism and post-socialist regimes, and I'm still referring students to your edited volume entitled Why Communism Did Not Collapse, Understanding Authoritarian Resilience in Asia and Europe, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2013. It's hard to believe that it's already been a decade. You're one of the few China scholars in political science who consistently brings a comparative perspective to our understanding of China. And I have learned so much from your work over the years. So when Margaret Margot Lamon at the National Committee invited me to in interview you about your most recent book, I immediately accepted. But I had no idea that I was signing up for a magisterial 450 page plunge into the richly detailed mechanisms of how communist dictatorships have attempted to get accurate information about what citizens are really thinking. But it was a genuine pleasure to take that plunge, and I hope our listeners will do the same and read your book. One of the central concepts in your book is that of the dictator's dilemma. What is the dictator's dilemma? Kelly, um, first of all, um, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to uh, join this event and to talk with me about my book. And also this volume that you mentioned, Why Communism Did Not Collapse, which indeed was published 10 years ago. Uh, one of the great pleasures was to have a contribution from you in that volume. So we do have a chapter from Kelly Tsai uh, in that volume. Now back to uh, dictatorship and information, uh, the dictator's dilemma. The dictator's dilemma is um, the inability of dictators to have accurate assessments of the level of popular discontent that they face from society. And the argument is that because dictators are unable to accurately assess levels of popular dissatisfaction, they're fundamentally insecure and they're likely to experience unanticipated coups and revolutions. That is a dilemma. So what are some of the main strategies that autocracies try to pursue to mitigate the dilemma? Right. In the classic literature, the argument is that the dilemma cannot be solved. So what dictators do is they engage in more and more repression, but more and more repression only makes them more insecure. So in the standard um, uh, understanding of the dictator's dilemma, because it is unsolvable, it only increases the likelihood of coups and revolutions. But what we observe when we look into actual authoritarian regimes is that some of them last a very long time. And in fact, there is one subtype of authoritarian regimes, the single party communist regime, which outlasts every other type of dictatorship. So my book focuses on those regimes, um, in particular on um, single party communist regimes. And I argue that they develop a whole range of mechanisms for alleviating and potentially solving this dictator's dilemma. Uh, and there, I distinguish between two main mechanisms. There are some institutions that allow citizens to voluntarily transmit information to the regime, um, primarily in the form of citizen complaints. And then there are other mechanisms that enable autocracies to involuntarily extract information. And, and those are primarily in the area of surveillance, but the range of mechanisms is extremely broad. So we have a, a rich panoply of, of institutions that authoritarian regimes create over time 
to mitigate uh, this problem of the uh, lack of knowledge about levels of popular uh, dissatisfaction. Well, speaking of information, before we go into more detail about your argument, I'm curious about your sources of information. This is an especially difficult topic to research because information gathering in autocracies is a hidden activity, as you write. And it's just remarkable that you conducted nearly 100 interviews in China, Cuba, Russia, Germany, Bulgaria, and the U.S., in addition to all of those field interviews, you also use the methodology of, quote, archival ethnography. Can you explain what archival ethnography means in practice? What types of sources did you consult? Yes, um, thank you, Kelly. Um, I had a lot of fun writing this book, um, and the fun um, involved um, trying to understand precisely uh, what, what you mentioned, the, these hidden activities in authoritarian regimes. What do autocracies do to solve this problem? So um, I started out by um, examining um, archives that have been reopened in Eastern Europe um, after the collapse of communism. Both the Communist Party and the state security archives are now open to researchers. I also looked at the archives of the Telegraph Agency. Those are the three main collectors of information in, in any communist regime. And then I um, um, started engaging with Soviet archival materials, which are available both in Russia, but, but actually more so outside Russia in various repositories around the world. And then the big question was, where can I find equivalent um, Chinese sources? So after a lot of searching uh, in, in, in libraries in, in the US, uh, in China, and also in Hong Kong, I um, collected what I thought was an equivalent set of materials uh, on China. Um, now, archival ethnography um, is this method of reading materials, not just as machine-readable text, but actually asking who were these materials produced for, with what purpose, and what might they be say saying in addition to the actual content of the document. They're often marginalia, so their instructions from leaders, their reactions to this, to this document. So for me, the question was, um, who is this document uh, prepared for? How does it circulate? And, uh, and, and, and answering these questions, I argue in the book, um, allows us to understand this problem of information flow in autocracies much more fully than we would if, if we were to subject these materials to um, computer analysis, for example, and treat them as machine-readable text. Thanks. The, the, book of the, the bulk of the book is structured around paired chapters that compare Bulgaria and China during parallel phases of their communist governance until Bulgaria transitioned to democracy in 1989 to 91. What motivated you to compare Bulgaria with China? Well, I can give you two sets of answers. And one is the honest answer that I was born in Bulgaria. I grew up there and I was 14 when 89 came along and I didn't understand what happened. And part of my reason for studying China is that China gave us a communist regime that also experienced 89, but the, the communist system uh, persisted after 89, whereas in Bulgaria, it didn't. So um, um, I have been thinking about Bulgaria my entire life. Um, but the scholarly answer, of course, is different from the personal one. And I argue in the book that Bulgaria and China are an unusually uh, good pair for comparison because I'm interested in two states 
that are unitary, that did not have um, foreign troops on their soil. A lot of East European countries had Soviet troops, Bulgaria did not. I also wanted two regimes that are ethnically heterogeneous and have an ethnic minority population of about 10%. So uh, Bulgaria and China were um, a, a very good uh, a set of countries to compare. And um, uh, I also wanted two countries where repression declines over time, and this allows for the uh, voluntary uh, provision of information. So um, in, in the first chapter of the book, I have a scholarly uh, reason for comparing Bulgaria and China, and I make an argument that they are an especially good uh, set. Um, um, and if one were to compare uh, China and the Soviet Union, which a lot of scholars do, uh, they're not as comparable as Bulgaria and China, because there are a lot of uh, other uh, uh, factors that vary between, between the two countries. Um, so yeah, so there's a, there's a personal reason and there's a scholarly reason. And then in the case of Bulgaria, I also had uh, archival materials that were available to me um, and and I could I could collect them and, and study them and then um, find out ways for collecting similar materials from China. Well, both both the personal and scholarly reasons make a lot of sense to me for sure. I'd like to follow up on that distinction between involuntary and voluntary sources of information in communist regimes. Could you provide some examples of involuntary versus voluntary types of information? And is one type of information more useful for regime resilience than the other? And, and if so, why? Yes, this is a great question that requires a lengthy answer, but I will try to provide a brief one. Um, in terms of voluntary provision of information, the one channel that I focus on the most is citizen complaints. And what I argue about citizen complaints is that when citizens complain, they uh, present the government with requests for services and, and benefits like housing or jobs or you know the payment of, of their wages or, or pensions. And when they make these requests, they don't lie. So um, citizen complaints are free from preference falsification, which involves citizens lying to the government about levels of support. So they are a very reliable mechanism for assessing levels of dissatisfaction. So this is one uh, channel for voluntary uh, transmission. In terms of the involuntary, we have surveillance of individuals, and this surveillance can be conducted by state security, by the police, by the Communist Party, by, by other actors. There are many actors who, who engage in surveillance. And the problem with surveillance is that there's a non-negligible probability that citizens would be aware that they are placed under surveillance, so they may misrepresent um, their, their support for the regime. Um, so the problem with the involuntarily extracted information through um, uh, uh, various surveillance mechanisms is that it presents a, a greater hurdle for the analysts who are interpreting it. And um, of course, it, it is quite useful and, and communist regimes engage in, in, in massive collection uh, of, uh, in, in massive involuntary collection of information, but interpreting that information is less straightforward than the one that is voluntarily provided to the regime. Your book includes a table that lists 14 different mechanisms for assessing discontent, including techniques that in, are a bit unusual, perhaps, like monitoring offline rumors, monitoring offline jokes, and even monitoring dreams. Can you tell us a little bit more about those unusual mechanisms? Yes, thank you, Kelly. I mean, they're certainly unusual, and they're fascinating. I mean, I, 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 I thought, whoa. So uh, we have evidence in both China and, and, and Bulgaria and East Germany 
that um, there's this monitoring of rumors. Um, um, in East Germany, there was a systematic collection of jokes, anti-regime jokes. Um, a similar effort took place in the Soviet Union and in Bulgaria. And in terms of dream monitoring, I have, I, there's only one single report, it actually comes from Bulgaria, of state security, in the case of Bulgaria, collecting information on what people dreamt about. Um, so these are unusual mechanisms. And the problem uh, for the regime insiders is that this information was not particularly granular. They didn't know what to do with it. Um, and um, as a result, um, these mechanisms never emerged as the main uh, uh, mechanisms for um, assessing levels of discontent. Because um, yes, I mean, jokes um, spread very fast and they, they're often funny, but it's not clear um, how um, um, subversive an individual who tells a joke actually is. Um, sometimes people just like to have fun and they tell, tell jokes against the regime. Well, it seems that dictatorships often don't have a very good sense of humor. <laughs> that is certainly true. Yes. Jokes involving the dictator. <laughs> well, although, although uh, in the case of Bulgaria, the dictator, Todor Zhivkov, a man who was in charge for 35 years, asked his closest associates to tell him about jokes that people were spreading about him. And these associates say that he laughed. I don't know how reliable that is. I mean, that's memoirs. I, I tend to be very dismissive of memoirs. I don't have archival evidence that he laughed about uh, uh, when, when he was told about jokes about himself. It's just memoirs. Um, but he did ask uh, by the 1960s and then 70s and 80s that individuals who spread anti-regime jokes should not be prosecuted. So, I mean, at some point, you know, in that one instance, at least, the dictator decided that, you know, you're not going to put people in jail because they tell jokes about him. Now, other dictators are um, <laughs> perhaps more sensitive about, about humor directed against them. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the emperor doesn't want to hear that he's naked or that it's funny that he's naked. <laughs> yes, so your, your book shows that in the case of Bulgaria, it's possible to solve the dictator's dilemma. But that doesn't guarantee that the dictator will be able to stay in power. Why is that? That's paradoxical uh, um, when, 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 we, when we first hear it, because the whole um, argument in the literature has been um, framed around the impossibility of solving the dilemma. And in the book, I show that, in fact, the dilemma can be solved. Autocracies are perfectly capable over time when they make the proper investments in the institutions to collect information about popular discontent. But what I argue is that this information needs to be put to good use. And the good use from the point of view of the dictator is to engage in strategic redistribution and in targeted repression. And this strategic redistribution and targeted repression is only possible under certain conditions. You know, one condition in, in, in my book is high levels of economic growth. Those allow for the redistribution. Another condition is low, I mean, moderate, moderate levels of fear. So when fear is um, uh, very low, then repression, uh, they need to repress too much. When levels of economic growth are too low, they don't have enough, enough funds for redistribution. So in the case of Bulgaria, especially in the 1980s, what we had was excellent information. The government knew um, extraordinary uh, details about how popular and how unpopular it was. 
but we had uh, a, lo a, a lowering of economic um, uh, growth. Um, there was uh, an economic crisis in the making, which meant that the strategic redistribution was compromised. And then levels of fear had declined to very low levels, which meant that the regime could not engage in targeted repression. It had to engage in mass repression and it just didn't have enough repressive capacity. So 89 was foreseen in Eastern Europe. The regimes knew that their popularity was eroding very fast and they were unable to act on the information that they had. So for me, 89 is not a story of lack of information. It's a story about incapacity to act on the information that was available. That's a really interesting insight. I'd like to switch gears to China. How have China's information collection strategies changed over time? And more specifically, what are the implications of the regime's use of more technology-intensive forms of surveillance these days? For example, are public security police and informants being automated out of their jobs? Yes, um, thank you, Kelly. This, of course, is a question that has extraordinary importance for China. Uh, what I show in my book is that in contrast to um, this stylized fact that circulates about East Germany being the most densely penetrated country in terms of the rate of informants, I actually demonstrate that China had more um, um, secret police informants than East Germany. And this continues despite the proliferation of um, very sophisticated um, surveillance uh, machinery. And you know, one question that, that I've gotten in the past is, well, why does China need all these um, humans that are um, secret police informants, given the extraordinary high density of cameras, given this vast um, um, apparatus that is reading uh, people's mail and, 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 and their WeChat messages and so on and so forth. And the argument that I've made is that the information that is collected through the cameras and through the pervasive monitoring of social media is not sufficiently granular. It's oftentimes unclear whether individuals have um, subversive uh, intents. Um, and what the government needs is it needs other humans to help interpret the information that is automatically collected through the cameras and through the monitoring of, of social media. So humans continue to be um, extremely important in the information collection infrastructure in China today, despite the um, advent of, of, of the cameras and the algorithms that allow the regime to read um, social media. One of the key themes in your books uh, concerns the challenges of gathering information from ethno-religious minorities in concentrated regions. I mean, that's really a perennial challenge for dictatorships with ethnic minorities. So communist regimes have tended to opt for repression. Are there any strategies that would be more effective than the more coercive options? Yes, thank you, Kelly. Um, this, yeah, this is a very important question. Um, so what I, what I do uh, in the book is I compare the ethno-religious minorities in Bulgaria and the ethno-religious minorities in China. And I find that, and, and then there are side glances at the Soviet Union, which of course uh, was barely Russian. It was 49% ethnic minority. So the problem of, of penetrating the ethnic minorities is uh, a, a problem that communist regimes proved to be unable to resolve over time. And they indeed opt for oppression and for ethnic assimilation. 
And um, the reason why they do that is that they're unable to recruit enough ethnic informants, and they also have a very low voluntary provision of information through the complaint system. So the strategies that would allow the communist regimes to avoid the massive use of repression and resorting to assimilation techniques would be to incentivize citizens to complain, so more voluntary provision, and to find ways to recruit more ethnic uh, informants in these um, ethnic minority areas. So then they can perfect the two systems of the involuntary and the voluntary provision of information and avoid resorting to uh, ethnic assimilation. Uh, but unfortunately, the experience of both Bulgaria and China indicates that um, this, this, this proved impossible uh, over time. I really appreciated the insight in your book about how citizen complaints, the voluntary provision of information is actually a good and healthy thing, that it actually reflects trust in the regime's potential capacity to address those issues. Um, as someone who's serving in an administrative capacity, I, you know, every day I open up my inbox and I worry that there might be one of those emails, <laughs> one of those citizen complaints sitting there. But maybe I should feel assured uh, when we receive these sorts of um, uh, letters and visits, as it were. But one thing that surprised me about your book, and I love to be surprised because being in this field for a long time, you, you kind of feel like, oh, you have a general idea of what's going on in China. But I did not realize that China actually has the lowest rate of citizen complaints compared to its communist counterparts. That's that's quite remarkable. Is that something that you expected going into the research? No. Um... Although I, I want to comment first on this issue of, of how wonderful it is to have complaints because they show the trust uh, of, of, of the populace. And, and uh, Kelly, you're a dean. I'm a department chair. But, you know, whenever you, you assume one of those positions, um, then instead of just studying complaints, you actually have to handle them. You receive uh, complaints and then you have to resolve them. So I have found that even though I'm fascinated by complaints, um, from a scholarly point of view, handling complaints is, is quite different from, from studying complaints. But, you know, that being as, as it is, um, yeah, so these days I, I, I like you, I, 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 I encounter complaints on a weekly basis, not daily. Uh, but now the issue of, of China and, and the rate of complaints, um, I did not have a prior expectation, but um, and I suppose I should take that back because, of course, the literature has been arguing that China is a very contentious place. But in the literature, there is uh, protests and complaints are considered to be the same by certain authors. So the fact that China has a lot of protests a lot of scholars have argued that, of course, it has to have a lot of complaints. I find those uh, to be um, uh, substitutes. I mean, they're, they're not complementary goods. So when we have more complaints, we have fewer protests. And when, when the rate of complaining goes down, we have more protests. Um, what I did expect when I went into the archives in Eastern Europe is that as the regimes were getting close towards collapsing and levels of dissatisfaction increased, the number of complaints would go up, but in fact it went down. And then what I found in the archives was that communist regime insiders interpreted the decline of complaints as an erosion of trust. This was in, the, in Eastern Europe, and then I found a very similar interpretation of the relationship between 
a high volume of complaints and, and trusts. So that a high volume of complaints, um, and, and we have this from none other than Xi Zhongxun, uh, Xi Jinping's father, um, you know, this is a quote from him, that if we have more complaints, that means that more people trust us. Um, so an increase in the number of complaints indicates uh, a, a, an increase in trust. And then when levels of trust decline, citizens go to the streets. So this emerged from the archives. And I think this relationship between complaints and protests um, came as a surprise to me because the China literature oftentimes thinks that complaints and protests are the same, but in fact, they move in, in, opposite, in opposite directions. I, I completely agree that they are they are quite different from the perspective of the the ruling party. You'd much rather have people express themselves in words than than heading out to the streets. Uh, yes, and in fact, we have this most recent government restructuring, which was just announced yesterday, where the uh, National Bureau of Letters and, and Calls um, has just been upgraded to uh, uh, being directly subordinate to the state council, which, which indicates that even today in 2023, the Chinese government um, would prefer for citizens to express themselves uh, through the complaint system rather than to go out into the street and, and engage in a protest. I'm going to ask a question which may not be fair. <laughs> Although your book is clearly and expertly addressed towards readers interested in understanding the information collection methods used by dictatorships, it could also be read as a handbook for dictators, i.e. how to collect information more effectively. I think there are policy implications, if not lessons, for contemporary or aspiring dictators. At the same time, I think there are also potential lessons for aggrieved citizens. So I'd like to focus on that piece. <laughs> Could you share with us what some of the takeaways are for um, dictators or, or really for those living in single party communist regimes on the other side? Well, thank you, Kelly, uh, for asking me about citizens rather than lessons uh, for dictators because others have also asked me, well, who is this book for? Is this is this a handbook for dictators? Um, the book emerged out of my desire to understand how these regimes function. Um, and in terms of citizens, uh, one of the arguments that I make is that communist regimes care about what citizens think. And communist regimes want to incentivize citizens to participate in the complaint system. So um, if there's any lesson for citizens is that they should um, engage in more contacting uh, of the government and they should let the government know what they're unhappy about. And in fact, communist regimes are more responsive to citizen complaints that, than we often think. Um, and long lasting communist regimes realize that they need to respond to citizen input in order to stay in power even, even longer. So uh, uh, if, if we're focusing on, on a positive lesson, I think that's probably a positive lesson for citizen and autocracies that they need to be more engaged with, with the regime. Well, one potential um, response to that is there could be serious repercussions to issuing complaints, though. Correct. Um, uh, there, there are certain areas uh, which are off limits. So uh, a lot of these complaints are about socioeconomic matters. Um, and um, in fact, if one were to complain about strictly political matters, then, then indeed there are repercussions. 
Um, there also, the, the question is, where does one complain? Um, there, there has been retaliation. But on that front as well, um, the longer a communist regime persists, the more attuned it, it becomes to the importance of protecting complainants from retaliation, because it knows that if complainants are afraid of retaliation, they will lose that trust in the government and they will be more likely to turn to the streets and, and to engage in protests. And that, in fact, is one thing that communist regimes do not want. They, of course, learn from protests. I mean, on that as well, there's an extensive literature on the information value of protests. And there I argue that, of course, protests transmit information. But I personally have not found evidence that communist regimes encourage protests, even though they learn from them. In fact, they do quite the opposite. They actively discourage protests uh, and they draw the requisite lessons. So if a communist regime wants to, uh, to, to survive, it needs to incentivize its citizens to complain and it needs to be sufficiently responsive to those complaints and it needs to protect citizens from retaliation. So I suppose here there are lessons both for the dictators and uh, for the citizens. Well, that's a good segue to my final question to you, which is uh, the first sentence of chapter one in your book starts with, quote, eruptions of discontent are often unexpected. Just a few months ago, we were all shocked by the so-called blank A4 paper revolution in China, which was followed by the complete lifting of COVID restrictions. Could you tell us how the insights from your book could be applied to explaining what happened? Thank you, Kelly. Um, I like archives. And on this particular issue, we don't have the archival evidence yet. So I think one answer would be uh, maybe in five years, I can tell you, or in 10 or 15, what exactly happened uh, with these protests. Uh, but um, with in terms of the argument that I advance in my book is that in order to be resilient and to remain in power, the government needs to be responsive to popular input. So we can think of the A4 revolution as one instance in which citizens made clear what they wanted and the government responded. Now, of course, what we can think of is that the government by then should have known full well uh, what, what citizens wanted and it should have responded a lot sooner. Um, so, you know, one could certainly argue that, you know, responsiveness that comes at such a late um, stage is, is not what, what citizens wanted. And, you know, when we can get into all of the issues about zero COVID and to what extent this policy reflected the lack of information versus, you know, other, other problems uh, in, the, in the top leadership. But I think, you know, one way to think of, 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 of the um, A4 revolution is that people spoke and the government um, responded. Great. Well, Martin, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. I hope this podcast has inspired listeners to run out and get a copy of your book. Um, it's it's just such an impressive undertaking that you have accomplished. And I think your contribution is going to be, you know, taking its legacy on our, our bookshelves and our reading list for years to come. So I encourage everyone to Check out Martin's latest book, and thank you for joining us. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.